How cold was that walk we took yesterday? Oh, that was so nice. You were like, take a coat, take a gloves and all this. And I was like, no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And it was fine on the way there. Because even though I could feel the cold, it was still daylight and I was walking. So I had that kind of sweat about you that you get when you walk in like a long distance. And um, it wasn't until we came out of the supermarket that, that it was like all of a sudden dark, really windy. And I was so cold. You were shivering <laughs> and you were pleading with me to give you my gloves. Yeah. And I offered to give you my hoodie as well, but you were too... No, you only had a t-shirt on. You, you were too froze. courageous to accept the offer. I used my thinnest ever scarf to like drave around me. I had my trusty. It was owl one hat, micron though. thick. <laughs> I had my trusty owl hat though. Yeah, I would have frozen to death if I didn't have that owl. Yeah, hat. I wish that my hat had had ears parts that cover your ears because my <laughs> ears were so cold by the time we got home. Yeah, it was cold. Yeah. But it was worth it to walk through the park. Oh, that was so pretty. I'm really glad we didn't walk through the park on the way home, though. Yeah, it was dark and sketchy. It was... Yeah, I can't believe they don't have any lights on in there at all. I know you say, well, they closed the park, but the park wasn't closed at that time, and it had been like an hour of darkness. And then we we still saw runners Yeah. going along the path in the park. That must be so creepy, running in the dark. Yeah. I feel like that's the start to like every bad horror movie. Yeah. The lone female runner in the park at night. Do you remember when we were walking through the park and we got to the flower part where there was actually no flowers because of the season, but all the ducks had kind of migrated to that part? Imagine being a runner and all of a sudden the ducks start like chasing you. You're confronted by 30 geese, angry geese. That would terrify me. The terrifying sequel to Angry Birds. The dogs kind of do terrify me. Because they come at you in groups. It's never just one. Gang violence? Is that what you're talking about? (laughs) Geese gang violence? Because I'm little, they're like half my size. Yeah. (laughs) They look at you as one of them. No! They say, come back, Sister Goose. (laughs) Rejoin the flock. Yeah. Yeah. Sad goose in the cold. They've got feathers. Yeah, but... So just because they've got feathers, this is what you say about Rudy. I'll be like, Rudy's cold. And you'll be like, he's got fur. And I'm like, that doesn't mean he can't ever be cold. It's like he's wearing a sweater all of the time. Yes, but you know you can put a sweater on and still be cold. I do know that, but only in like deepest December. Nah. We still feel the cold in October. We just like it. Yeah, but he's got so many little cubby holes he can retreat to. Like when he goes inside the wardrobe and like cuddles up amongst the shoes and the basket and whatnot. Yeah, that's adorable. And he's got like a bunch of, like he goes on the windowsill, which I guess is probably not the warmest place. But it is kind of shielded by the curtains. He tries to make little hidey spots for himself as well. Like when I put the clothes horse that's got clothes on it, like clean clothes, and I drape it, like, not drape it, but I... Leaning against the wall, and so the clothes kind of drape down. He hides underneath yeah. there and goes. It's like to a sleep. little half tent for him. It's adorable. He finds little crevices, and then when it's super, super cold, every so often we'll go into the bedroom, and there'll just be a, a rudy shaped lump underneath <laughs> the duvet, and we're like, "What is that? What is that little, that little lump in the bed, trying to get all so toasty adorable. and warm?" 
And sometimes I... she'll sit on the bed and he'll make a little chirp like, hey, I'm in here. <laughs> Don't disturb me. This is my bed now. I, I think sometimes when the weather starts to get cold, oh, is it bad that he doesn't have his own, like, bed? But we've tried several times to, like, give him a bed, like a, a special cat bed, and he won't go in it at all. He likes his little box down there. And I know sometimes we think, oh, maybe we should put, like, a little blanket in. But I've done that before. And you put something in it and he doesn't want to go in it anymore. I think he will just find the warm spots. If he needs to, yeah. yeah. He'll find somewhere warm. Like, every so often we find him in weird... Like, he's just sitting in the middle of the floor somewhere in one of our rooms. And it's like, to us, we have no idea why he's sitting there. But it might be because... That's the only place he can escape a particular draft. He knows what's up. Uh-huh. He knows the places in the house that have particular benefits. And he also knows that like when we go to sleep, he'll lie at the foot of the bed. Yeah. Usually your feet. Usually on my side because... Which is strange because your legs I'm are longer. Very lenient. <laughs> Maybe he knows that. Maybe well, he's tried it on my side before and I've kicked him in my sleep or something. Which is horrible to see. It is, but yeah, but it's not your fault. Yeah. I feel like if you go to sleep knowing he's there, though, you automatically in your sleep kind of know, like, you'll stay to one side. Like it's embedded in your yeah. subconscious that you need to protect this little, little, little furry mammal little at the foot of the bed. Fur. Sometimes he'll take up, like, the whole of the foot of the bed <laughs> so that I have to, like, kind of curl up into the fetal position so my legs aren't anywhere there <laughs> and then it's kind of like this is a bit obnoxious cat I you try, know that i have to stretch out you I know that's where my feet over, go and you're like right there because you can't because this only goes on for so long where i'll kind of allow him this indulgence and eventually i kind of just nudge him gently with my foot <laughs> like go to the corner of the bed and we'll be fine you can't take up this whole space yeah this is a human bed and then there's the times when i'm lying on my side and he comes and lies on my side yeah and i can't move and he goes to sleep yeah it's amazing how quickly he can fall asleep and he's not a tiny cat people he's like a big like i think people would say he was a fat cat like a banker but I don't think he's fat. He's of the banking class. But he's quite a big framed cat. I wouldn't say he's that big of a house cat, but he isn't. He is a fully grown adult house cat, so yeah. he's not like if he comes on you, you know that he's sitting on you because he's yeah. got some some weight to him. He's heavy. He's never. He's warm though. He is very he warm. Warms me. He's like a little hot water bottle when we're in the bed. Uh-huh, if you're cold, he'll yeah. come and. The weird thing is he does come and sit on you like that. Like when you're lying on your stomach, he'll come and like lie on the small of your back and just curl up and go to sleep. But he never does that to me. And I feel like I toss and turn more than you. So that must be why. Maybe. Like I he knows turn quite a lot that I'm not a stable platform for Possibly. his sleeping activities. Or it activities. might be because I'm wider or whatever. So he can spread himself. You're cushiony. I'm cushiony. Cushiony soft. Oh, yeah. You like to sleep on me too sometimes. Yeah. Sleep on my tummy as a pillow or my butt. Yeah. One time I did use your big butt as a pillow. Yep. Which is fine. Which is okay. Which is permissible (laughs) in this society, I think. It felt so nice. I kind of fell asleep as well. Yeah. It would have been 
interesting if someone had walked in and found us in that position. Yeah. Like, is this your habitual arrangement, you two? <laughs> is this the only way you can fall asleep head on butt? <laughs> that would be funny. Yeah. So what's your first topic? Okay. So my first topic is an article I saw on dazeddigital.com. And it's like a piece about an artist and there's like an interview with the piece as well. It's about Audrey Wallen, who they they call her an they specifically call her an Instagram artist, as if that kind of means something different. But I feel, I feel like either way, she's an artist. It doesn't really matter. Where anyway, they talk about her, I guess, conceptual piece of work right now that she has that's called Sad Girl Theory, and she talks about how it's kind of rooted in. Almost like booking this kind of contemporary feminism that's kind of made a comeback, if you will, um, about how feminism now is something where you have to kind of be grateful to be a woman and, like, you know, you have to love yourself completely and you have to be, you know, successful. And she's like, I can't, I can't keep up with the demand, if you will. And I found the interview with her quite interesting. And she talks about about how girls these days have to be overjoyed at the fact that they are a girl. And her kind of way of being sad and putting it out there is is her way of kind of resisting all of that. Uh, I don't know, I just found it really interesting because it made me think about how Oftentimes, you know, not everyone uses like Facebook and Twitter and things like that the same way. Some people use it as more of like a blogging type platform where they, you know, they don't necessarily just talk about what they did today or like moaning about something, but they'll talk about how sad they are. And obviously there are tons and tons and tons of blogs, you know, that are like people's diaries. I know that I have blogged on and off for like years now and I just wanted to talk about really about it, the article really just made me think about that more than anything about how how we do use blogs to kind of say anything you know we're so sad and depressed and we talk about that like really in a really intimate way and I wanted to just get your thoughts on that really I do find that idea interesting that in modern feminism it's almost like you're seen as letting the side down if you're not able to constantly like openly celebrate the fact that you're a woman if you do complain about certain parts of being a woman it's like you're seen almost as kind of a debbie downer it's like why are you doing this when everyone else has already been denigrating these parts of womanhood for so long why aren't you on our side where we're constantly trying to push this narrative where it's fantastic, everything is fantastic about being a woman? And so if you kind of turn away from that because you need to express some sadness or some sorrow or some grievance or some dissatisfaction with the state of being a woman, it is like you are kind of shunned and kind of looked at with a cucked eyebrow like, don't you understand what we're trying to do here? Like, you're holding our narrative back. 
Yeah. It's like you can't win as well. If you put yourself out there, um, you know, you're posting a lot of selfies and you're using it as a way to kind of express yourself. It's like, oh, you're not a good feminist or whatever or, you know, because you're you're just vain and kind of want to use this as like a... But then if you do kind of almost the opposite and you're not full of like self-love or you, and you are just kind of sad you're not using it correctly then either. Um, so it is kind of almost like you can't win. She talks about how um, patriarchy is the oldest system of power that there is and that sadness and tears and even self-harm have been considered symptoms of femininity for centuries. And looking at her Instagram and how she really just is kind of like unfiltered in how... I mean, you can tell as well a lot of these things. It is a piece of art, so it's not all, you know, I'm not saying it's all true stuff. But it made me think about the stuff that I choose to put out there. I have a blog, and even though it is in one sense kind of centred around a, a certain aspect of me and not my whole self, it is completely true evidence of, of what you're going through. Yeah. It is like an accurate chronicle of what's going on in your day-to-day life. And that's not always this kind of jubilant celebration of your personhood. Sometimes it is this, I hate how I feel today. I hate who I am. Because you do have those days where you have an irrational self-hatred. And you need to be able to express that in your outlets, whether that's an online blog, whether that's Instagram, whether it's Facebook, whatever, without feeling this judgment of why are you putting this out there? Don't you see how this is just reinforcing these stereotypes about the weepy woman? Like you need to feel like there are people around you who are going to see past all that kind of worrying about optics and how your expression affects the greater movement of feminism because you need to feel free to say what you need to say. I think I'm on a constant journey of trying to figure out why I like to express myself that way. I use kind of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter more or less the same as everyone else. But then I also have a blog where it kind of, it gets kind of deeper or more intimate or more personal, whatever what you want to call it. And I like to do it. And I feel like the sadder I am or the more depressed I am, I do it even more. And I don't know why I do it and I don't even really know what I get out of it except except that I like it. And I feel like I'm on this constant journey to try to discover why. And I don't necessarily need, need to know why. I just, I hope that in this constant conversation about it, about the way we use, especially women, might use, um, the internet as a way to express ourselves that eventually will kind of, I mean, I never, I never linked the two in my head, really, feminism and the need to kind of express myself, like, especially when sad or depressed, I never linked the two before, really. Well, like you said, it is these kind of self-imposed demands of, I need to find some deeper, profound meaning of why I feel the need to do this that do end up kind of stifling you, you do start to feel like 
I want to write this blog post to kind of vent these unpleasant feelings I have, but what does it mean to do that? And what effect does it have in the greater landscape of... It's strange because I don't do it, and I don't know if everyone's like this, but I personally don't do it to interact with people either. Like, someone might say, well, it's because you want to kind of reach out, connect with people, but I don't. I don't ever do it in in a way where it's like, give me a response to this. And I don't know if I would even welcome, well, it would depend on what the person says, but welcome a kind of like response to my more intimate pieces, you know? Like, I just kind of like to do it and put it out there. But maybe, <clears throat> maybe that's the creative part of me though. Because as a photographer and a writer, you want people to see your stuff and to kind of enjoy it and to like it. But I don't ever want to talk about it. Does that make sense? Talk about it in what sense? Like if I had, say for instance, if I had like an exhibition of my of my artwork, I wouldn't, and I went along to that exhibition, I wouldn't want to engage people about it specifically me I mean I I don't think I would want to talk about each piece like I really hated that in in uni when I went to uni every time at the end of every assignment you would all kind of show your pieces your um you would show your images and then the whole class would stand around and have a discussion and analysis about it. And they would ask you questions and I dreaded it. I really, really dreaded it. It was just really uncomfortable. And maybe that's because there's always something of me in it. Like you, when you write, I feel like a lot of the time you have a, it's like very separate from you. That makes sense. Well, to a certain extent, I do feel like I can write fiction where it's separated from my personal feelings and my personal experience. It really is just more or less a pure act of imagination. And maybe from a psychoanalytic stance, that can be questioned and that can be debated. Maybe I insert more of my personality even in those separate instances of fiction making than I realize but I do when I do have the more personal pieces I definitely think I shy away from the meta discussion of why I created them and what those choices mean less than you do I think I'm more comfortable in explaining even though sometimes it's difficult to account for choices you've made I don't really feel daunted by the challenge of try to give your best explanation for why you did what you did in the context of creating this piece of art. Like, what significance does it have? And how did that affect the choices that came after it? Because I think if you really sit down and think about it, you can find those answers. You can dredge the well of your mind and you can figure out things that weren't apparent to you when you made the choices. And then when you figure out those things, you can kind of reverse engineer your own creative process so that next time you make a piece of art that follows similar lines and draws upon similar parts of your mind you'll have that more advanced understanding of how your mind works when it's creating 
a piece of writing, when it's framing a photograph, when it's making a song, whatever it is, and you can have more direct control over your decision making. And so I think that's very valuable. And so I think it's worth the effort of what is sometimes an awkward and kind of a a process that makes you self-conscious and it makes you feel kind of silly because you're in a way aggrandizing your work by taking up people's attention in talking about it. And you have that nagging voice in your head that says, who are you to spend, you know, 20 minutes or a thousand words making this meta deconstruction of this piece of work but really it is worth it even if it is only in the context of how it will help you as an artist so I think it's worth bearing the brunt of the emotional burden yeah it's so strange because in talking about not wanting to engage people with it I still want people to see it we just go back to the basics of like blogging when you're sad or depressed and not just blogging but maybe like sending out a tweet about how sad you are or a Facebook status even though I don't want to kind of engage with people I do want people to see it and I want them to want to engage with me but I don't necessarily want want an anonymous silent viewership of your art I think that's an that's an acceptable request as an artist. You want it to be seen, but you don't want to see the seeing happen. But is that just because I am an artist? Because I'm not necessarily talking about my art right now. I'm just talking about like blogging when you're sad or writing a status because you're sad or sending out a tweet when you're sad. Like that's not necessarily art. Or maybe what this artist is doing it's showing us all that actually when you do that, it is a kind of art. Micro art. Yeah, like I don't necessarily just write, oh, I'm sad. Like I do fight, like it will almost be like micro prose, you know, like about how I feel. And that's obviously the writer in me. Well, you want to craft it in an interesting way that really expresses how you're feeling in a precise and kind of captivating fashion like i rarely just be like i'm so sad right now it's more of a it kind of looks more like a quote like someone when people post sad quotes it kind of looks more like that except it's my own well you it kind of defeats the point to just put something so generic as i'm feeling sad right now because if there's a point to blogging and even (laughs) micro blogging platforms like twitter it surely has to be that you express yourself in a way that more or less accurately conveys how you feel in some detail. If you just put, I am sad, you're not, it's so generic and so bland and so vague that it doesn't really express how you're feeling in that moment because sad is such a pointless suitcase term in a way. If you explain that you're Mm. feeling a certain type of sorrow because you lost a loved one, then you're expressing yourself properly in a way, not to sound too elitist. But that's how, maybe I should just say, that is how I feel when I write something. I could never really countenance writing a blog post that used those kind of generic euphemisms like that because I'd feel at the end of it when I post it that I haven't really expressed myself. I've just kind of put out there these commonplace markers of 
you should send me sympathetic yeah. messages and sad face emoticons. It's funny though, because I feel like the more kind of generic you are on like social media, um, like I rarely say things that are funny. But if I say some, just something that's kind of funny and boring about something silly that everyone knows about, like a TV show or something, I feel like you get more responses. But if you are kind of like sad or lyrical or kind of like artistic in any way, you rarely kind of get... Maybe it is because it's more intimate and personal and people don't know... Maybe it's just people don't know what to say. But then it's like, well, even people kind of in your closer circle don't necessarily engage with it and I'm like well can't really but they don't know what to say then because they would know what to say I was thinking I can't imagine you ever just like tweeting about how sad you are yeah like I because you don't use social media yeah but if I did I don't think I would use Twitter heavily I appreciate the function and the utility of Twitter, and I think it definitely has a useful place in terms of here's a way to force people to embrace brevity, to use a real economy of words in terms of you've got 140 characters, say what you need to say and nothing else. Like it's this very kind of brute force way of making people see the usefulness of concision but if i was to use social media twitter would just be one part of it i feel like out of 10 posts on social media i might use twitter once because it would only fit a very small percentage of how i want to express things yeah but now people use twitter for everything like whereas beforehand they might have wrote a blog post now they try and cram it into a few tweets. Yeah. And I feel like that defeats the point of Twitter and also has a damaging effect on how they are able to express themselves. Instead of using an economy of words merely as one tool out of many, they start to see that need to be succinct even at the loss of nuance and detail. They start to see that as the only way to express themselves. And I think that is a disservice to how you want to have a range of tools to be able to say what you need to say. You want to have Twitter for those short little Telegramese-esque missives. (laughs) You want Facebook for those longer posts. You want Tumblr for those really long blog posts or those multimedia posts. Each social media platform should have its own place in the way you express yourselves. But for some people, they only use one. And so they embrace the way that it forces them to express themselves. And that becomes their only mode of self-expression, which I think is not particularly healthy, especially if you aspire to be an artist. Yeah, I don't know. It's odd because I I use, I feel like I used to use Twitter the most and that would kind of, you know, because you can kind of like send tweet after tweet to kind of make a story. Um but now I feel like Twitter, maybe it is because it's used for so many different things now. It's almost not, I don't know, it doesn't feel comfortable, if that makes sense. I feel like blogging and like Instagram and Facebook, they're more kind of, um, they seem kind of more personal almost. 
you know, like Twitter, you can only do so much. You can't really show yourself in like a deep... To go back to the whole kind of um, reading this article and this interview with this artist really has kind of made me think about how I see my own like blogging and the way I express myself and how it is kind of a, a piece of art in its own way. Like if I wasn't here anymore, you could kind of, I mean, I remember, oh, you know, this makes me think of when I was in uni, I did, we had an assignment where whatever we decided we wanted to do, um, I did photography, so obviously it was going to be a set of images. Whatever you decided you wanted to do, you had to make it into a book, and that was the assignment. And so I took my blog entries that I had been making at the same time and accompanied them with new images, like Polaroid images. And it was kind of the most almost the most personal that anyone in the group had done and it was the first time the teacher was kind of seeing anything like that from us and I remember him saying don't you just think this is all really self-indulgent though and I remember being really thrown in a sense because it's like well isn't that almost like what an artist is Obviously, there are people like documentarians and, you know, it all really depends on what kind of art you're putting out. But I feel like a lot of the time it is about the artist. It's something to do with the artist, about how the artist feels or it's an aspect of them. And so isn't it all really kind of self-indulgent? And if it is, so what? Like, yeah, I don't understand. I didn't understand the problem with that. It was especially funny as well because he himself was a photographer and one of his pieces of work that he showed us was pictures of his apartment. And it was like, dude, you know? Yeah, I think as an artist you can't allow others, especially people who don't partake in any kind of creative process themselves, and those generally tend to be the people who like to criticize the most because they don't have the experience of putting something out there for the world to kind of examine and to give you whatever feedback they might give you, positive or negative. You can't allow those people to cow you into being this kind of defensive, apologetic, cringing artist where it's like every time you put out a piece of work, there's this implicit disclaimer of self-effacing like humility of like I know I'm just you know this one guy from this little town and I don't really deserve to have anyone see this because it's just an expression of my feelings and I'm you know I know that's really selfish and self-indulgent and blah 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 but I'd really like it if you could take a look at it you know you have to have a certain self-assuredness a certain confidence an ability to say what i have to produce the ways that i choose to express myself are worthwhile and if you don't like it and you don't think it's valuable then don't pay attention to it i'm yeah. not coming to your door and forcing <clears throat> you to inspect this photograph for 30 minutes at gunpoint i put my art out there in certain venues and then people can come and choose to view it and decide whatever they want to decide about it 
and that's fine. That's the artistic process. You create something and then you put it out there for your peers in your artistic circle and also the world at large to look at it, to learn from it, to maybe implement some of the things that you figured out into their own work. A lot of art really is just look at me, see me, notice me, tell me that my life has meaning and it has meaning because of what you're seeing and how you relate to it and, you know, maybe it helps someone, even if it doesn't help anyone, but maybe it helps someone or it helps someone see in them what you're trying to express, you know, I'm sad and it's okay that I'm sad and look at the way it can be expressed and it can be viewed and it can be taken in and so I feel like maybe that's, I can admit that in myself, like a lot of what I put out there into the internet, I guess you could say, into the world is a kind of like see me, look at me kind of thing. I don't necessarily need people to respond to it, to actually say I see you and you're important. I think just knowing it's there is kind of enough. Well, like you said, with the rise of things like Twitter, these places to express yourself on an extremely regular basis, you know, some people tweet many tens of times each hour, it has become like everyone bears their personal diary mm. to the world. Your Twitter feed is like your journal. Now, of course, you don't express yourself with perfect honesty because you know that anyone in the world can see it. So there's a certain amount of self-censorship and phrasing things in a certain way that you otherwise wouldn't do if you were just writing in private. But it has become like everyone has bared themselves to everyone else. And so everyone's diary is open to the public. So yeah, we had to stop recording for a little while because of some loud noises from outside of our window. It's pretty loud. Yeah. It sounded like we were on the, the bottom floor even though we're not. Some of the urban ambient what? noise <laughs> rose to a level of the unacceptable. People are wondering where we live now. What type of... We live in some like dystopian... No, I don't Mega know where you're going with this. I always go towards the sci-fi. <laughs> Either way, it makes me think people can hear us when our windows open and they're in the car park, like getting to their car or whatever, whether they can hear what we're saying. I don't think so. Unless one of us is in the middle of some impassioned rant and our voices are raised, Maybe. I don't think that they'll be able to hear. I think we probably are louder than we think, though. But is it going to carry, like, 30 feet? Down yeah. into the car park. Maybe. I don't think so. Maybe, baby. So, yeah, we had to take an intermission, but we're back. We're back to forge ahead with episode four. Oh, I was just going to sing, and then I yawned and it ruined it. Yeah, that was your body's <laughs> way of telling you don't do it. Hey, we're what trying are you to saying? save you from embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, my singing voice is pretty bad. I like your singing voice. I'd love for you to sing me a lullaby. At yeah. all hours of the day. No, that's it's not a lullaby then, is it? Although I think be if you like hear someone anthem. singing to you at every second, you have some kind of mental illness. 
What? I'm so confused. Okay, tell us what topic you've got. Okay, so let's move on to the next topic. So I found a news story on BBC News entitled Limit to Human Life Maybe 115-ish, which is nice and specific. Seems like you're hedging your bets. (laughs) And basically, it's a news story reporting on a new study that has come out saying that the natural endpoint for human life seems to be basically 115 years old. Now, also included in the story, there are some other people in the scientific community disputing that study itself. But I don't really want to talk about the study. I want to talk about the idea of society having to change because humans are going to start living longer and longer. Right now, in most wealthy first world nations what would you say the life expectancy is it's got to be like 70 or 80 yeah i feel like once you get to a certain age people kind of write you off as being you in your last years yeah and so i wanted to talk about how you think the world is going to change once medicine and improved living conditions make it so that Basically, everyone lives to at least 100, 110, because that's going to radically change how not just we view life, but how we have to rearrange our ways of life so that it makes more sense in terms of the course of your Mm. lifespan. Well, I feel like it's only going to change. Like you, I feel like you're seeing it as this like radical change, like you said, but I feel like it's only going to change if the quality of life changes. So, there are people right now who do live to 100 or to live, do live to 110 or whatever. But for their last, like, 20, 30 years, in some cases, they are just really, really old and can't do all the things. And frail and... Yeah. So, I feel like it's only bound. going to radically change and mean as much as I th- feel you want it to mean if the quality of life changes if over the next 50 years it starts to kind of change where you can still be like 85 i mean obviously you do get the odd case where like someone's like 90 and they're fit as a fiddle a sprightly 90 year old yeah but like sword fighting i think over the next 50 years or however long it starts to change where like most people can still be quite you know together and able to do things at like 80 i say 80 because if 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 we're thinking 100 and 110 that's like 20 years from 20 30 years from death so you'd think that by 80 or whatever you could still do all that stuff if that doesn't change and we do start living longer but the quality of life doesn't change then i don't really think it's going to be that that big a deal not that big a deal but that big a difference i think what you're saying is a fair point but let's proceed on the assumption that up until so say if everyone lives to 115 which is what this study was positing as the natural end point of human life based on the degeneration of cells and certain things that medicine is just not going to be able to fix if we assume that up until say 105 107 like when you near 110 up until that point Yes, you're you're in old age, but you're like what we would consider a 
60 year old to be right now where you are creeping up in years but you're still seen as yeah. physically capable intellectually capable you've still got all your wits about you you're still a capable agent in society mm-hmm. and i think if you think about that right now we look at that as 60 65 70 when it get, when that changes to we look at that being at 105 that's a big difference you're adding on 30 40 years of extra lifespan where you're still able to do what you want to do we've got to assume then that retirement age will also change retirement age now is like 65 um what will it be then 90 85 90 no less i think it would probably be like 80 because if you think you hope that you're going to live till like your 90s, because that's quite late, but it's reasonable because people do that quite often. And your retirement is at 65, you're giving yourself another 25 years. So if we say 80, 85, um, that's, it, it gets me thinking because it, it makes me think, you know, when people, like my friend, I feel, and I hope she doesn't hate me for this, but I feel like she thinks that she's like middle-aged, but she's only 34. And I feel like once upon a time that was middle-aged, but that's not middle-aged yeah, anymore. Yeah, like in the 1800s. Yeah, middle-aged is like, to me, our mum's age. Our mums are middle-aged. They're not old they're not young, they're middle-aged. So that's like late 40s, 50. Because I feel like you, you're still giving yourself... The assumption of, I'm going to hit I'm going to digits. live till I'm like 80 or 90. And well, if you're going to live to 80, 50 wouldn't be middle-aged. No, but just like young spans, spans a, you know, a, a period of your life. Middle age does. Middle age is not when you're 45 yeah. and only the when you're 45. The exact midpoint of your it's life. It's like a period in the middle of your life. It's like another birthday you have when you yeah. officially reach the midpoint. That would be it. So I feel like already that is getting older. Like, because, you know. But it's, it's getting older incrementally. Yeah. And it's getting older so slowly that you almost can't notice the increase as you're living in society and like i said if you are kind of like visibly and physically like old at like 75 or whatever um then it is kind of more real for someone to say well 40 or whatever is middle-aged um but then like you said there's that strange amount of variability where some 75 year olds are running marathons and hitting the bars every night and writing a novel and they still want to do all these things they still have all these aspirations they're still sprightly and they're still with it mentally but then you have some 75 year olds who look like they're 120 they're extremely physically frail they're beset by all these dehabilitating illnesses they look like, and obviously you don't want to make this judgment, but they look like they're at the end of their life, mm. whatever that means. And so if I think there would be a big change even if we were to say everyone lives to 90, say, not mm. even as much as 115, but up until you get to 85, you're still, medicine has made it so that you're still 
very capable physically and mentally. I think that would have a big difference if if that was just an accepted standard mm. that everyone could enjoy that extended period of liveliness. It's strange because I feel like we all have like grandparents, and that's usually the closest soonest time you see old age but I feel like we're gonna get into the stage of our lives where our parents are getting old and I feel like that's gonna be our closest look at our proper closest look at someone turning like changing from not being old to being old and um I wonder what that's gonna be like I mean (laughs) I'm officially at a point in my life where I'm where I do think about things like you know I I could be like a third of the way through my life already if you think about it if I only live till 90 I'm a third of the way through my life yeah that's scary that's really really scary but imagine if you knew you were gonna probably live to like a hundred if people start to too considerably like move forward to kind of it now is the standard that you live to like between 90 and 110 let's say depending on you know your health and whatever if i knew i was gonna probably live to about 100 i'd feel so much better about well that's what i'm saying culturally it will make a big difference if we can officially say that the life expectancy is 100 110 because those ways that we segment Mm. human lifespan right now in terms of you're a child then you're a teenager then you're a young adult then you're an adult then you're middle-aged then Then you're you're older then you're old then you're ancient and by the time you're ancient you're like you know 85 or something like that those segmentations of ages are going to be radically shifted yeah because it would be it would be nice for obviously a lot of people if it was much more acceptable to kind of still not really know what you're doing at like 40 because then that's not even halfway through your life. Already that's kind of changed just in the past 10 years what with things like the economy and like, you know, more and more people are still living at home even in their, like as they hit 30 or they've moved back home because it's so expensive. And... I think it is more acceptable now to still be in your 30s and not really have things pegged down. But as it changes, it's gonna that's going to get even higher. It's going to be like, oh, I'm 43 and I just got my dream job or whatever. I wonder if, like, we do evolve so that we naturally, you know, don't seem to age as fast and then we do live longer. If other things will start to change, like... Right now, if you're like, once you hit your 40s as a woman, it's kind of considered, you know, not completely safe, not completely safe to have a child. If you do have a child, you know, it's very delicate. You're rolling the dice. As you get on in your 40s, that possibility becomes less and less and less. And then presumably by your late 40s, 50, you are in menopause territory but i wonder if and how that will change i'm assuming something like that's not going to change straight away but like 
if maybe people are living easily to 100 for like how long like 50 to 100 years that's been happening I wonder if things like that will start to change I don't think there's kind of even relatively small biological changes can happen on that short of a time scale. Do you think it's got to be hundreds of years? I think it's got to be way more than that, unless there's some kind of artificial catalyst mm. that speeds up the process. Those kind of evolutionary advances, they happen over the course of tens of thousands of years. It's kind of crazy that you have this ability to have children and then it stops at some point. Well, like, because you only have a certain amount of eggs from birth, which yeah. is a very, very strange concept. That is very strange. I don't really understand how that works. I don't understand it either. But it's... Partly because I don't want kids and so I don't... haven't ever really hit that knowledge level. Yeah, that's really strange. But you don't start producing eggs when you're born. No, but you. Ha I think you have the eggs... That's so weird. This is such a weird concept. Okay. It's one of those things where you look at it like if I was going to design a human, like if a human didn't exist right now and I was going to build one from the ground up, that's one of those counterintuitive yeah. things that you just wouldn't do. You wouldn't be like, well, a baby has a certain amount of eggs and once they're depleted, they can't have children. They're infertile. That doesn't seem to make very much sense. And the other weird thing is I remember a while ago I saw an article with I think it was an interview with a woman who went around schools basically educating female students on fertility and the the thing that was very arresting about it was she would she said like I tell the girls if you want to have four kids you probably need to have your first kid at like you know whatever 19 20 wow. if you want to have six kids you probably want to have your first child at 17 18 and she's talking to like teenagers but her stance was they need to know these things because if this is their aspiration yeah. there's no use telling them when it's too late they need to be able to make these choices I mean, while, I there's, guess so. while there's still time yeah i mean i guess so but like some people really do see that as a life's purpose, though, just having ki having a family, having kids. Well, evolutionarily, it is kind of your No, life's but that's purpose. their purpose. Yeah, I know They what you're are saying. a kind of stay-at-home mum for the whole time, and, like, that's what they dedicate their life to. It's not just a case of, I do this and I have kids. It's, I am a mum. Yeah. You know, that's the first thing they say when they introduce themselves to you. You know? And they've wanted to be a mom yeah. since they were like 12. So I guess in that case, it'd be good for people to know. But I don't know. I think we have an aversion to that idea because it is strange to think that. Because when you have a child, your life becomes about your child to a large extent. Obviously, you can still achieve things in your personal and professional yeah. life. But if you want to be a responsible parent, you really have to rearrange your whole life around raising this child, protecting them, supporting them, giving them what they need, planning for their future. And so if you do that at like 20, it's like you've had 20 years out of what, 80, 90 of your lifespan. Yeah. And now you've decided that my life isn't about me anymore. It's about this new being that I've produced from my body. 
and they're going to become completely dependent on me for everything. And so I'm going to have to be completely self-sacrificing for the rest of my life. It's not even 20 years, though, really. It's like four, maybe two that you've had because you can't really count from birth to like 16 yeah. or 18. You're totally being controlled by your parents and like the law. You have to go to school. There's no way out of that. You have to go to school in some form. And so you only really become, start to become a kind of like separate person when you hit like 15 or 16 and then you finish school. And then you have those few years where you're expected to kind of know your life's plan. Like, what do I want to do and how am I going to get there? And I've got to figure it out in one, two, three years because I'm expected to be a functioning adult with a whole life set out by my early 20s. But I feel like if we start to live longer, it's going to be much more acceptable to like really spread stuff out more, you know? Just kind of float through your 20s and 30s. Yeah. Which is what I'm doing. <laughs> Living the good life. Yeah, baby. So, yeah, so I don't... I think it will be, like, a radical thing once it actually is happening, like, commonly. You know, it becomes kind of... I can't think of the word, but it becomes almost... Not rare, but... Oh, yeah, she died at, like, 65 or whatever. And there was nothing wrong with her, and it's like, whoa. Well, at some point, the only way you're going to die before that upper echelon of age is some kind of accident yeah. or some kind of violence, and that is going to become rarer and rarer. Or illness, obviously, but... But the point is yeah. that illness would be so diminished that you basically everyone would be able to ameliorate their conditions to the point where they can just continue living despite yeah. them. It's going to be weird when, like you were talking about, things shift so that right now, generally speaking, women tend to have children in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. But when everyone lives to 110, 115, maybe the new normal will be women tend to have children in their 40s, 50s, 60s, who knows? And like I said, culturally, that's going to change a lot mm. because you're going to, it might be a good thing because you're going to have older parents, more experienced parents that have a greater wealth of knowledge and understanding with which to approach the humongous task of parenting. It's funny because my mom had me and my brother, she had my brother at 16 and then me at 18. And so growing up, I always found it odd that when everyone else's parents were older, like to me at that age, I, I would have said they were old because that's what you think when you're little. And then some kids who had actually had old parents and it was so odd to me growing up, even to the point where now, like, my mum's best friend, like, had kids when she was in her 40s, but my mum already had grown-up kids by then. It was it's such an odd thing to me just because my own parents were so young. There is this strange, unwritten rule, this kind of implicit taboo about 
judging someone's choice to have kids at an earlier age than perhaps conventional wisdom said they should have. I don't think it's like unwritten. I think everyone knows it's like, you know, you do get the odd people that, you know, kids that think, oh, I want to be a mom and I want to be a mom straight away. But I do think most of the time when people do get pregnant from the age of like 16 to 20, it is kind of seen as like, oh shit, like that was kind of an accident. Like, I feel like it's rarely planned someone having a kid at that age. It's usually like an accident has happened. Are we going to have it? Do you know what I mean? So people are judging you. Yeah, so I don't think it's necessarily like this unwritten thing. I think it is kind of a judging thing. Like if you know know someone who gets pregnant at that age, I feel like your natural reaction is not going to be yippee. It's going to be, oh, so like so young. Like are they ready for that? Are they equipped for that? But my point is that you're not supposed to say it out loud. Yeah. There's an understanding that everyone kind of thinks that, but it's seen as in poor taste or excessively judgmental to actually say, why did you have kids at 17? You're obviously not prepared for this momentous responsibility. And Yeah, and there are some families that the cycle kind of continues. Their kids get to like 16, 17 and they have kids. Their kids get to 16, 17. They have kids. And so they kind of see it as normal when it happens to their kids. Does that make sense? And so I think in some situations or some kind of families, it's it's not even seen as that. It's just totally seen as like normal. And so can you imagine kind of trying to say, don't you, you know, don't you think it's, they should kind of get some more experience and like make sure they've got the right tools to kind of have children. I feel like they would almost feel like that was a foreign concept at that point. Well, I think we need to move as a society towards an idea of responsible parenting, including having a child at the appropriate time. Yeah. And right now, on the fringes of society, that is something that is talked about. But it's always talked about with that kind of judgmental bent of, ah, oh, these teenagers, they don't know what they're doing. Like, we mm. have to... And it usually ends up along the lines of, let's teach abstinence. Let's teach mm. kids not to have sex so we they don't get into this position. Which, of course, is not the answer at all. And so it doesn't, it doesn't address work. education in terms of, let's treat these young adults as intelligent beings and address them with a very simple calculus of if you have a baby isn't it fair to say that you want to do everything you can to make sure that they have the best chance at a good life which includes you being in the best position to help them have a good life and so it would be better to have a child when you're not a teenager so you have a much larger store of life experiences and resources at your fingertips with which to help your child. It's funny because so many people don't think that way. 
even if someone has had quite a tough life, even up until the age of like, you know, they're 16 or 18 and so far they've had quite a tough life and so they feel quite grown, you know, it's easy to think that you are an adult and that you do have, because you have a lot of experience in things that you shouldn't have had experience with yet, that it's easy to kind of think of yourself as this adult with all this like wisdom. And I probably thought that too at that age. You know, when you kind of feel like a grown up and you want to be treated as an adult. But I feel like, and I don't want to be one of those people who says that because I hated it when I was young. But your mind really does change so much just in those, that short, that decade. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like you would just have so much, such better tools to raise a child yeah yeah there is that weird thing where and it feels like a universal precept of being a teenager where as a teenager you see people telling you you don't know anything yet and obviously it's usually said in a kind of joking dismissive way Mm. of like oh you'll learn like you don't know anything about the world yet and so you never really accept it as this axiom that it really is because it's only as you get older that the lesson unfolds before your eyes that there's so much you don't know and there's so much that you're going to learn but it's one it's that classic thing where you don't know what you don't know it's it's not just about knowledge and learning something it's about having the experience of something over and over again so that you can deal with it in the right way. Do you know what I mean? Like, by the age of 30, I've done so- something so many times that I now have the right skills to deal with certain things. And it's only by that time, not just experience, but time for for my the inside of my mind to develop... And for me to have all those chances to go this way or that way or this way or that way, that I actually know, know certain things now. And I know that I wasn't like that when I was like a 19 year old thinking that I was all grown, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. That idea of it's not just doing something, it's doing something over and over again that really lets you understand the thing itself Mm. like when you're a teenager and people say to you you don't understand love you don't understand relationships at least from my perspective and like I said this harkens back to the kind of inherent teenage rebellious instinct of fuck you (laughs) I won't do what you tell me and you don't know what you're talking about yeah but when I would kind of hear the idea of you don't know about relationships. Your instant reaction is, well, I've been in a relationship, so I do know it. Yeah. But the point is not that you don't understand what it is at all. Because if you've been in a relationship, you understand to some extent what a relationship is. The point is that once you've been in five, ten relationships when you're at 30, 40 because you've done it so many times and you've seen so many ways it can unfold and so many ways you can go the right way and the wrong way mm. and what the significance of those choices are. You have such a deeper understanding of relationships in general 
that it's almost like a different class of knowledge from just having been in one relationship and thinking that's the be all and end all of what the thing itself is. I can say for like certain that I am a completely different person to how I was just six years ago. Like environment and the people that you're around and the decisions that you make can all really change you and change your ways of thinking and how you go about things. And I do feel like it would really, really benefit like you having a family if you had some of that behind you instead of just this is like the first or second kind of like experience I've had with a person and now I'm pregnant and we're getting married. We're going to get this married, so it's going to be all right. Like, And obviously sometimes those things work out, but I just feel like I don't know why you wouldn't want to have those best tools going forward. I don't know why you would limit yourself and your children that way. I think it's, personally, it's kind of like a selfish thing to just go ahead and do something when you don't have the full comprehension of what it means to be a parent. I think the kind of counter-argument to that, if I was to play devil's advocate... As you like to do. ...on occasion, is some people look at it in terms of, I don't want to plan my life out on the basis of what is logically the best route for my life to take. I don't want to say, well, I'm going to go to university at 18 and I'm going to get married at 25 and then I'm going to pursue my career for 10 years and then at 35 I'm finally going to be in the best position possible to have a kid. A lot of people, I think, even if they don't express it in these terms, they have this subconscious idea of basically exalting human spontaneity where I don't want to plan my life out. I want to have maybe a vague, nebulous concept of, from a grand remove, how I want my life to unfold. But really, I want to just take things how they come. And I want to be able to make decisions when I want to make decisions. I don't want to have to wait for the quote-unquote best time or the quote-unquote appropriate time. And so if I find myself in a relationship with someone I love at the age of 22... And we both agree that we want, we really want to have a kid, then I'm going to do it then because I want things to unfold as they unfold. I don't want to try and, you know, force my life into this mold of how the best way to live your life is supposed to be. I agree with that to some extent. I guess really, I think what was fueling part of my side of kind of the discussion was. I don't think kids should be allowed to have kids because, well, lots of reasons. They're kids themselves, you know. I think it's kind of strange that you, you know, there's a law in most places that says you you can't have sex until you're a certain age. Here in England, it's 16, There's not a specific law that says you can't have children at any point. But presumably since, you know, having sex is supposed to be illegal before 16, 
that it's going to be at 16. But you're not allowed to vote till you're 18 and you're not allowed to drink until you're 18 and you can't even drive until you're 17, although I think that's gone up to 18 as well. And in America, it's even older, it's 21. So, okay, I can't drive and I can't decide on the decisions of my country, but I can have sex and I can have children. I can raise a human being, but I can't drink alcohol. I feel like that's really stupid. And, I mean, I guess you can't have a law that says you can't have kids. But, like, I just find it so insane that, you know, people as young as, like, 12 can have children. And I'm not, that's not me saying what I really feel like then is that if you're 12 and you get pregnant, you should have your child taken away from you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I don't know what should happen. I'm saying... It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't right feel now right. Twelve year olds can have children. Yeah, it doesn't feel. I went to school with someone who, by the age of like fifteen, had two kids. You know, her first child she had when she was like thirteen. I just picture myself at thirteen, and I'm like, whoa! Yeah, and I was quite a mature thirteen mild. year old. I'd seen a lot, you know, but like, pretty mind boggling. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah, but like you said. And I think you should trust that instinct of we can't make a law about this no. because that's the simplistic answer to that where you have government step in and legislate and say you're not able to have kids until you're 18. But obviously that's the most totalitarian yeah. way forward possible where the government says when you can reproduce. Like we look at China with its <laughs> one child yeah. policy and we see that as kind of an emblem of a totalitarian state because... It's trying to coercively manage when and how people have children for, quote-unquote, the greater yeah. good, which this would be the same type of argument where it would be saying it's okay to imprison people for having children younger than a certain age or take their child away from them because they're not capable of raising a child properly, which in turn will create a person that has certain deficiencies and if enough of those people are produced, that's going to detrimentally affect society. And so the government is going to step in and try to rectify this with criminal punishments. Going back to, like, how we evolve and stuff, and, like, talking about how whether in time, a lot of time, if we start to live longer, will, you know, a woman's reproductive system change? It would be really great if your body wasn't even able to have kids until you were an adult. Because yeah. I don't think anyone agrees that it's, you know, a, good a perfect scenario that children can, can have, have children. children. Yeah. And so it would be really good if over time our bodies evolved that way. You know, maybe periods came later and then the ability to have children came later. That would be perfect. Really, to be honest. Well, that's, like I said, if you were going to design a human being, you might yeah. contemplate making that a restriction where you don't become fertile until you're 30, say. Well, no, I think that's too late, but yeah. But then where would you put the... Well, as an adult. You're an adult so once 20, you're... So 20, then. No, you're an adult once you're like 18. Well, now you're just splitting hairs. 
What's the difference no. between a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old? Yeah, there might not be much difference between a 16 and 18-year-old, but there's a lot of difference between a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old and a 12-year-old. So you've got to put it somewhere. So then why are so you So you wouldn't 18? just put it at 14 or 15 because those ages mean nothing. There's a reason why like 16 or 18 is an age for a lot of things because you are changing at that age. You do kind of like you finish school, you're expected to do more adult things. So I feel like that would kind of be like a good natural age. See, I wouldn't put it as low as that. And of course, this is just... Put it even higher. This is just talking hypothetically if this is yeah. if this was how the human body works. Because we've got human design, designing tools We're, in the bedroom. We have, we have become gods of ourselves. <laughs> yeah, this is not talking about any kind of law because I definitely don't think government should involve itself in reproductive choices yeah. in this way. But hypothetically, I would say a much better time for the human body to start becoming fertile would be like 25, maybe even a little bit older than that, closer to 30. And I get, especially if, like this study says, we start living to 110, 115 Mm. with the advances in medicine, making that possible. I may even put that higher because that gives you enough time to feel what life is like as an adult. I've got to imagine that a lot of, the girls and it is girls not women when you think about it that have children at 15 later on in life they may look back and think well i don't regret it because i love my child and so a good thing came of it but they may look back and think i didn't even know the significance of the choice i was making the true profound significance i didn't even understand what i was doing i didn't even understand the choice i was making and so I wasn't really even in a position to make that choice for myself. But obviously you don't know that as a 15-year-old. You can be told it, but like we talked about, you will kind of instinctually rebuff that caution. And I feel like a lot of people who, who've who had kids, even when they have got to adults, they're so kind of scared or like really don't want to say actually you know what if I could do it again I'd have you a little bit later or I wouldn't have you at all because they love their children and that overpowers everything it makes me think of a few headlines I saw recently actually some articles I read and some I didn't where it's like women are starting to admit that they regret having their children or why it should be okay that you're allowed to regret having your kids. And I feel like it should be more of a... Because so many people just won't say it. Almost like, I guess you could say, what's the point of being able to say it and it'd be all right? Because you can't change anything. You've got your kids and nothing's going to change. But I feel like if if they could say it, like freely a lot more people than you think would say that they regret having kids well there's a balance to for be whatever reason because on the one hand if more women did come out and say i regret having children too young because although not I'm, even just too young though sorry to interrupt you but just in full stop for whatever reason okay if women came out and said i regret having children too young because although i love my child I wasn't in the best place to do the best for them. 
that would have a benefit in an educational sense in that girls and yeah. young women would see that and maybe rethink their unwise decisions to have children so young when they're not in the best situations to raise that child properly. But on the other hand, the children of those women who come out and say that, that is obviously an incredibly difficult thing to deal with. You know, having your mother say, at least in some sense, I wish I hadn't had a child at this time. Although you can kind of separate emotions from that and just say hypothetically, in a pragmatic sense, maybe that's true. But as the child of that woman, it's going to be a hurtful admission because it's basically saying, I had you under these circumstances and I now regret those circumstances. You can say, well, you shouldn't be hurt because they would have still had you just at a different time. But it's not really you they would be having because they would be having you at a different stage in their life. You would be growing up in a different time. So in a sense, what they're really saying is, I wish I'd had a different child. No, I feel like you just jumped from like A to fucking Z without like... I I don't think that's what people will be saying at all. That's not how I would take it. Like if my mum said to me... Like I think my mum does feel that way from discussions we've had before. I get the feeling that if she could do it again, she'd have kids a little bit later. I never, ever have taken that as, I wish I didn't have you. I guess it all depends on how it's expressed and what your life with that parent is like. I know for a fact my mum loves me and is glad I'm here and we have a very close relationship. Um, We're friends, we hang out. Like, So I have never, ever taken that to mean she didn't want me. She, She, you know... And so you're right, though. Some people can't take out the emotion. A lot of people will just see it as, you didn't want me? You don't want me? Like, so many people will just think, I think, especially when it comes to, like, babies and things, like, it it just elicits such a emotional craze. <laughs> well, it's not really a pedantic point, the one I'm making, and I'll try and explain it a bit plainer because maybe i got too caught up in the hypotheticals but say in your instance if your mom says i wish i'd had a child later you were born in 1985 so say she says i wish i'd had a child five years later in 1990 she would have been a different person at the time you were born and you would be a different person now because you would have different life experiences because you would start growing up from 1990 and so you will be a different person than if she had given birth in 1985 and so in a sense for her to say i wish i'd had a child later the logical implications of that is not that i wish i'd had a different child but what she is wishing she had done would have resulted in a different child than you no i know that i know that that's what that means what I'm saying is that that's not the intent behind the words, I wish I'd had a child later. I know, but my point is that if you are the child of that mother, I don't think you're going to be able to make that 
logical distinction in your I'm head. I'm saying I would, personally. I wouldn't think to myself that my mum's saying to me, technically, she wishes she'd had a different child because she would have had them later. I personally don't take that meaning from those words, even though it technically means that. Yeah, I see that point. And I guess it does come down to how you choose to think about your mother making that statement that would kind of condition your emotional response to it. Because obviously you want your mother to have made the best decision she could have made for herself with such an important decision. But even if she made a bad decision, that bad decision led to you. So in some sense, you have some self-interest in saying, I don't really care about whether this decision was at the best time it could have been and in the best circumstances it could have been. It produced me. And so I don't want you to say that you wish you had done otherwise. But going back to the original idea that we were discussing of living to an older age, another thing that I thought was potentially an interesting consequence was right now when we see people produce the best work of their lives in whatever field they're in, like mathematical geniuses producing their best theorems and their best advances in the field or engineers creating their best products or artists creating their best works of art. We tend to associate that with a certain period of someone's life where they've reached the kind of peak of their ability. And I think for the most part, it's kind of like late 30s, your 40s, and then maybe your early 50s, where this is kind of seen as the peak of your output as a human. But if you think about what would change if we live to 110 and say our memory doesn't degenerate as it does now as you get into your older years, if you're able to retain all the information that you've gained and all the skills that you've gained for an even longer period than you currently can right now. So say right now you gain information and increased ability over 40 years and then you produce the best thing you can produce using that. In future, it may be that you can double that period of accruing those resources so that at 80 you have doubled the resources that you would have had. And so are we going to get to the point where the products of human ingenuity are doubly great? Wow, yeah. Because you have even longer and even more experience and even more time to learn and perfect whatever it is that you're doing. That the standard of things being output will be raised. I never thought about it like that. That's really interesting. I really do, I didn't think this at first, but I really do think it would be a different world. When you said it at first, I was like, no, because people are still going to be like old when they're 80, regardless of living for an extra 30 years. But what if that's really not the case? If you have the body and a mind of a 40-year-old when you're 80, you just give yourself a longer period to accrue intellectual resources to produce something to contribute to humanity with so yeah i think that's probably about the end of what we have to say about 
<laughs> humans and their strange activities. We'll check back in when we're 110. We'll be doing this podcast for... Oh my God, can you like imagine? 90 years. I feel like I say that a lot, a lot to things. Can you imagine? It's like a natural reaction to things. It's... You're a person who's very driven by imagination, though. Yeah. You like to imagine hypotheticals and wonder about the implications. Isn't it weird to think that there are going to be people who have started a podcast in like their 20s as podcasting is at its infancy and they're going to continue it throughout their lives so that they're going to have like 90 years of wow. podcasts? Think about the people repertoire. who put out multiple episodes a week, every week without fail. Wow. That's a lot. It's going to be like a chronicle. Oh. It's going to become like the new, not just podcasting, obviously, but like all forms of blogging. Like yeah. there are going to be people out there who are going to have like 90 years worth of blogging still on the internet archive somewhere. I think that's so interesting, interesting for like friends and family, especially the types of friends and family that you have that don't necessarily know about that stuff. Like for them... Like when you're, if you're not here anymore or whatever, for them to kind of discover your ninety years of like output, it's pretty crazy. Here's Grandpa Tom's blog from when he was twenty. Yeah. He was writing about <laughs> anime and nerd culture and yeah. rating different. I think it's time to move fruits. on to the next topic. I don't know. You've gone mad. Another point. Another interesting thing that I sometimes think about is right now the internet seems infinite like it seems unbelievably vast yeah but think about in a hundred years when there's another hundred years of human contribution to the internet assuming that everything gets archived at least to some extent imagine how big it's going to be then yeah because there's really only like 20 years of internet so far and we it already seems like i feel like that just blew my mind a little bit inconceivably massive and diverse (laughs) and there's so many things that (laughs) must still be around on the web from like the very beginning stages of the internet where you'd look at and be like this is going to become like an archaeological relic in the future people gonna look back and say look at this myspace page (laughs) this is our internet ancestors and their I can't really respond to what you said because during what you were saying, I had a funny thought. There's got to be someone out there who's trying to complete the internet, right? Like... Read everything on the internet? Like, you know, sometimes when you go on, like, Reddit and people, like, I... You know that, the image site that's, like, partnered with Reddit, like... Imgur? Yeah. I don't know if you're supposed to say it. Well, I feel... Yeah. I think if you do it with people Imgur is what I was going to say, but... um, you know, you sometimes see people saying, I completed Imja or whatever, and I'm tonight. They looked at all the images on... From that day, and I'm like... That's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> there's also the problem of, there's so much, like, garbage on the internet. Like, actual yeah. nonsensical, just, like, spam websites and spam advertisements. That? And that's taking up yeah. bandwidth on the internet as well. Who's paying for that? That's what I wonder. Yeah. Because you can type in, like, any address... And it's rare that it just says nothing displayed. It will display some kind of spammy shit if it's not, you know. It's interesting to think at some point there may have to be like a purge, like a huge team of 
internet archaeologists who go back and delete all the nonsense <laughs> pages like spam and just yeah. like crappy ads that have no content just to make room for more websites can you more imagine blogs. that was the case we need more room we're running out of space <laughs> so yeah let's let's move on to the the next topic of discussion you're having a big yawn right now. Biggest yawn ever. That was a very self-indulgent like yawn. Split my face open. You threw your head back, and you were determined <laughs> to enjoy that yawn. That was a that was a first world yawn if I've it ever was. seen one. It was a big one. Okay, so the my next topic is I saw an article written on the website yourtango.com. and it's something I usually view through Facebook. So I don't know why that matters, but I thought I'd say that. Um, basically a woman named Rebecca she talks about how she was she was going somewhere coming from somewhere and going somewhere and she bought some cookies and you know she had like the box of cookies so it was clear what the content was and she was like on the bus or the tube or whatever and she said a woman, it wasn't even someone that she had like started chatting with how you do sometimes or you make eye contact with. A woman tapped her on the shoulder and said, you're so lucky just eating whenever you want and not caring. And she talks about how she was really shocked and didn't know what to say. But instead of just kind of like, you know, your automatic response might just be, oh, yeah, and then smile, you know, how you do sometimes. But she said she actually managed to get through all that and just looked at the woman and said, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to believe that she said it extremely quietly. Yeah. She leaned into the woman's ear and she said, fuck you. Fuck you, And then just like leaned back and stared at her for the rest of the journey. Yeah, she talks about how she thought about all all these thoughts that went through her head. Like, you know... Did I tell her that, do I tell her that every day is a battle to love myself? Do I tell her that, you know, one of the bravest things she's ever done is carrying a big box of cookies? You know, like, there's that thing as a fat person, and I identify as a fat person, for people who don't know. (laughs) Um, There are these automatic things that you do or don't do depending on where you're going to be and what whether you care what people are thinking about you there's you know the oldie but goodie of eating in public and what type of food it is that you're eating you know are you going to be eating like a burger or a hot dog or something which you know traditionally is kind of like a junk food and so there are all, all these things that you might do or not do in public because you know that people have reactions and say things to you and so this woman was just like minding her own business and it was really like you know a big deal for her to be on there with this box of cookies out for people to see and this woman this fucking woman thought it was totally okay to comment like first of all why do you need to say anything at all? And second of all, what kind of backhanded fucking backwards shit is that that she said to this woman? Like, she's trying to say, the woman thinks that she's saying something nice. Oh, you know, 
you can do oh it's so nice that you can do whatever you want and not care that you're fat like what but Who like does you said that? it is a kind of backhanded insult it is a humble brag of oh yeah i'd like to be able to enjoy cookies but i worry about my figure and so you you slovenly <laughs> slob yeah. you get to do all that That's so it must be great for you yeah it, it is that kind of faux innocuous comment where you're really just trying to self-aggrandize and to advertise the fact that you are sacrificing to improve your appearance. Mm. That is a very strange thing to be confronted with, especially, like you said, for it to just come out of the blue. I feel like I would, if I was in her position, have done the thing, just like you said, I would have clammed up and just been so shocked that I probably would have just awkwardly smiled and turned away and then later on wished that I had said something in response. I think that's what would happen to me as well. I would clam up, but then I would wish that I'd have said something. Like, when I saw what her response was, I was so happy that she didn't just do that kind of pleasing thing of, "Uh, yeah, smile and just kind of go about your business. I mean, as a fat person, I can tell you that people do make comments like that on a regular basis the amount of times i've gone to like just the store and bought like you know some chocolate some biscuits or some crisps or something and the person behind the counter is like oh having a feast yeah oh like oh i wish i could eat that like but i'm on a diet what are you what are you saying and why do you feel like it's okay for you to say these things it's not it's not okay. And also things where it's like people assume, like when you ask for a Coke and they say diet, and I'm like, no, why would you assume I want diet? Because I'm fat and I'm on a diet? Because all fat people are on diets because their one and only dream is to be thin. That's not the case. I can tell you right now. Yeah, it's that weird class of comments where a lot of the time the person doesn't even realize the offense that they are giving out. They haven't thought through what it's going to mean to the other person. Yeah. They just want to express that they, for whatever reason, wish that they could eat a different way. And so without any consideration of how it's going to affect you or what it's going to imply about how they think about you, yeah. they just say it. But it also kind of has the secondary effect of demonstrating how they think about themselves versus you yeah it's like it makes me think when people talk about when they're on a diet i had a friend when i was like in my late teens early 20s and this is when i was like chubby slash fat but i wasn't happy with myself i am now absolutely happy with myself and in love with my body and i'm the biggest i've ever been and that's totally okay with me i am completely 100 percent in the fat acceptance movement Um, but then i was like full of insecurities and hatred because of society and people's remarks and i had a friend who was at the time supposed to be a really good friend and she was a thin girl like completely thin and she constantly talked about how she thought she was so fat and disgusting and horrible and just all these horrible things about herself, which in and of itself is a tragic thing. 
she clearly had body dysmorphia and other issues but on the surface what she's saying is I'm fat and I'm disgusting and she's saying that to her fat friend and you know she would she would say things in a backhanded way just like this woman like when she talk about how she thought she was ugly she would be like oh you're so pretty like you don't have to wear makeup you don't wear any makeup like and you just look the way you do but I have to like wear makeup and that's the only way to be pretty and like I don't know it was all just very you don't understand what you're saying is affecting me everything you're saying is affecting me and you don't realize that what you're saying is I'm fat and I'm disgusting therefore you're fat and you're disgusting but isn't it fair for her to say I would prefer to be thin than a different type but of... what we have to look at is why she prefers to be thin because society says thin is best and that is why she wanted to be thin because in her mind fat was wrong fat was bad fat was ugly because oh boys only like thin girls and thin girls get everything and fat girls don't get attention at all and you know like if you have legitimate reasons for why you want to be a certain way that's totally fine but if the reason you want to change is because society has made you feel like the way you are now is inferior that's wrong but is it wrong for her to <clears throat> say even accounting for the fact that I may have arrived at this position because of forces that are not entirely trustworthy, I have now made a decision that I personally want to be thin. That's how I see myself and that's the end goal that I want to reach. And is it fair to say that because she doesn't want to be fat, that she is in turn generalizing that preference and saying fat is bad? Can't she just say, for me personally, with my body, I would prefer to be thin without the further implication that it's because fat is an undesirable state of being. But that's not what she said. She grabbed what little parts of her body she could and said, I'm fat and it's disgusting. And she said it okay, too, yeah. in front of a fat person. That's not the same as saying, you know, whatever reason you want to be thin, I can't think of a, a reason right now that wouldn't mean fat is bad. Like, be, yeah, I can't think of one. So unless she said that and she she was really open and honest about why she wanted to be thin and it had nothing to do with all those reasons, I would have supported her. If she said, I want to change and I want to be like this, because of course, but... That's not what she said, that's not what she did, and that's not what most people do. Most people go, oh my God, I've put on four pounds, isn't it awful? Isn't it horrifying? Look at my whatever. And it's like, no. And they're making reference to the kind of generalised idea that fat is bad, yeah. fat is undesirable, instead of simply saying, I want to be thin, mm. and so this is a unpleasant development. Exactly. It's as if fat has become this like horrible disgusting lazy thing that must be avoided at all costs 
and that's where it comes from and the assumption that anyone who isn't thin is unhappy and that everyone who is thin should be happy is just dangerous and I don't know why people think that they can say it just say it you don't know this person at all yet you felt it was totally okay to approach them to interfere in their public I mean their private space their public space their private space and just be offensive do you give any lessened culpability because most likely she wasn't intending to give offense she was trying to say something innocuous and friendly no because to me it's not friendly but i don't she know how... thought it was friendly isn't it but fair no, to say she that... was thinking of herself she was thinking of herself okay. even in what she said she was thinking of herself oh i wish i could eat that way but i have to watch what i eat that's all about her it's not about the woman it's not oh You've got those cookies I've heard about. They look so delicious. I want to try them at some point, which is a totally normal and acceptable thing to say to someone. It was, oh my God, I wish I could eat as much as you and, you know, whatever. No, only on the surface do you think that that's like, oh, I'm just trying to be friendly, just chatting. But even if you, I'm sure even if this, if this woman was put the words in front of her, surely she would know. Surely. If she saw what she had said written out and she was able to kind of reflect on how it would be perceived by the other person. Because I feel like if someone said something like that to her, like oppositely, she would have the same reaction as this woman with the cookies. But obviously she's the person who's been offensive in this instance so she doesn't see it or she refuses to see it and we're all operating on the assumption that she thinks she was being nice we don't actually know that okay yeah so that's that's true because people are harmful and hurtful they really are like the amount of like street harassment that i have kind of faced across my whole life it's like just proves people just can be really hurtful and they just want to like yell things at you. They think that it's okay to say what they want. It helped like if I'm on my own and I go out every single day, I'm probably going to get something said to me on five of those days. That's the percentage. That's not a percentage. Okay, well, that's how I'm. I'm, I'm five out of all. Five out of seven. So it's like... Did you say I'm going out yeah, every if I day out, for a week? Yeah, if I go out every day for a week... I don't think you did. I did. I said if I go out every day for a week, seven days I said, and I go out seven days every day, about five of those days I'm going to get something said to me. That's how much he said to me and other people. And that's from anything from pointing and laughing because I'm so fat and horrible according to these people, to um, look at that fat ass or, you know, some kind of backhanded compliment like what this woman received. It's alive and well, my friends. How do you think that we try to combat that idea that people have where they feel like they can just say things, even if they know it is openly derogatory? How do we 
advance towards a society where people don't have that kind of malicious streak or at least some people have that malicious streak and it is so taboo so frowned upon so combated that it becomes like this extremely extremely rare thing well it's bullying it's harassment so it's obviously it needs to be taught at an early age that like you know, you don't bully people. It's not okay for you to say rude things to people, especially people you don't know. It's not okay for you to approach strangers and say mean, horrible, rude, provocative things to them. That's not okay. And if you think that's okay then something has kind of gone wrong. You you know, you obviously are the type of person that bullies people or is just a fucking douchebag. Like, I don't know what a, what area you have to kind of specifically go to to fix that, but obviously these things need to be taught early on. It's like when you're, when you're around kids, kids, to be honest, kind of frighten me. Because I feel like kids have this sense of, I'm talking about really young kids, like under 10, where they have that air of like being able to say anything they want. And sometimes it's in an inquisitive way. Like maybe they've never seen a fat person, they're really young, and they say, you're fat. Like, are they saying it because you're completely different to anyone they've ever seen? Or are they saying it in a mean way? Or they've heard their parents. Or they've heard their parents, yeah. Language derogatorily. Yeah, and oftentimes when I've experienced that, because I have experienced where kids say things like that to me, they'll be like, you're so fat, or why, it's often, why are you so fat? The parents, in some cases, have been my good friends or my relatives. It will be like a relative of a relative kind of situation at like family gatherings. They never ever say, that's rude or unacceptable, don't say that again. They just kind of go, oh, isn't Billy so silly or whatever. Like, they laugh it off as this weird kind of kids will say whatever they want. And I think it's at that age that you need to be saying, no, no. You do not say those things to people. Why don't you say those things to people? Because it's hurtful and it's rude and it's mean. And by the way, fat is not an insult. Fat is a descriptor. You know, people are fat. They don't like, you know what I mean? People have yeah. fat. They not. They are not fat. Like I am not defined as as fat. I just am fat and that's just one thing about me. And it doesn't have to be, it needs to be taught from all angles First of all, you don't say things like that. Second of all, it's rude. It's, you know, you're using this as an insult, and in fact, it shouldn't be an insult. There's nothing wrong with people being fat. Like, there are so many levels to this, and I feel like a lot of people really are missing that point of teaching that it's not a good thing. And I mean, you know, you only have to look at the world and you can plainly see why people think it's okay to laugh at fat people or to say horrible things. Because whenever you see fat, like on TV or in movies or whatever, which is where we get our like mirror images from, 
it's a joke or there's always a joke made even if the the movie or the show is not actually about that person being fat there's always got to be a joke about this person being fat and it being horrible or whatever or you know if they want to be really careful they'll have the fat character make a self-deprecating joke about their fatness or there's a thin person and she talks about how she can't eat the cake because she's going to put on a million pounds and be so fucking fat she can't fit through the door and it will just be the end of her life. Like, constantly. And let's not even go delve into diet culture, how that's everywhere, automatically telling people that they're less than, you know. So it's a really, really hard thing to try and... Well, there's this. An aspect of the snake eating its own head here, because movies generally, especially the popular ones, the ones that are mainstream, they do tend to just reflect society, reflect the dominant culture. And so if you say, well, this should change, this approach towards handling fat people and fatness in general should change in movies... That, in a way, is not going to happen until it happens in society. But in turn, it can't happen in society until these influences on popular culture change and then affect society in turn. So there's a kind of what comes first, the chicken or the egg dilemma here. Yeah. It's all about representation and we don't have any or we have very little. I mean, even the representation that we do have is problematic because... Then you get into all the kind of subsections of it and all the different levels. It's like, okay, we do have like mainstream plus size models now, but wait, they're small fats. They're only like a size 16. And so the people who are bigger, like a size 30 plus, they're not being represented. And so, and then you also get people like Ashley Graham, who's like quite big now, who's only like a size 14 or 16. And size 16 is the actually the average size of American women. So she's not plus size. And she's here trying to campaign for people to drop the plus. And it's like, you know, this is a whole different conversation, but it comes down to representation. And I think if fat people need to start being represented in a quote-unquote normal way like thin people are and that's where it has to start from that in conjunction with trying to combat this bullying mentality and this you know thinking that it's okay to comment on things when it's not if we can try and do that together you know then I think things will change you know some there are people that will say we have come a long way, like, you know, in terms of, like, the plus-size community, but actually, no, we haven't, not really at all. Not when people on a daily basis are getting harassed. That's not, that's not change. Well, I like the idea of the prescription being society as a whole has to change. It's not just the people at the fringes that have hatred for fat people that need to change. It's everyone else needs to change where that attitude becomes so unacceptable, so shunned, so exiled from acceptable cultural norms that it simply can't exist. It's given no room to breathe. It's given no oxygen to thrive. And so to take the example that you brought up where the woman 
says something offensive to the other woman on public transport, in the ideal future, she would then, another passenger would look at her and say, do you know what you just said was hurtful and offensive and demeaning? Or she would get hard stares or someone would point it out to her in private. Or there would be this culture of zero tolerance for that type of thing. And especially for the more aggressive forms of catcalling and stuff like that, where it really is on another level in terms of really expressing a hateful attitude towards whoever it may be, fat people or some other type of minority or whatever it is. If we can get to the point where the type of person who wants to do that knows that if they do do it in the public spear they're going to encounter such a negative such an angry such an antagonistic response that they do think twice and unless they are a die-hard seller of anti-fat bigotry they're not going to do it and so the majority of the people who would potentially say something offensive or shout something from a passing car or make a remark meant to hurt or demean someone wouldn't have the confidence to do it because they fear the public reprisal in response. And once we get to that point where society as a whole has implicitly agreed that this is not acceptable and must be combated by even the bystanders who aren't involved in the altercation, then we're going to get to the point where it just doesn't happen anymore. It's so hard because it's so ingrained in people. All the way from no, I can't eat that piece of cake because I'll, I'll put on weight and that's hot and that's negative and horrible. All the way to harassing people and bullying people. And because it's so ingrained, I mean, you only have to look at like the comments on like these articles on Facebook or whatever to really see that the, the people that do, um, that do hate fat people really, really hate fat people. Like it's, vulgar and violent and just really just disgusting the types of things that people say and it's like all because a person's fat it's like I'm just being here fat not doing anything to you I don't understand why it's so offensive like it's really has so many layers you know oftentimes it's something really just to do with that person you know all boiled all the way down to the fact that society says one thing. And this is what society says. And I really do hope that we start to see more of a change. But it does worry me that, like, it's like one step forward, two steps back. It's like with a little bit of change, there's always going to be... Yeah, it's weird because a lot of people don't see the connection between... When it is the case that in society, whenever fatness as an abstract idea, whether it is someone who is fat or the idea of someone becoming fat or fat culture, when every single time it comes up, it's either derided or used as the punchline or shown to be bad in some way and prescribed against. If every single time that is the cultural response to fatness, even if it's at a relatively low level where it's not necessarily hateful, it's just kind of mocking and Mm. derogatory, that 
then lays the foundation for the real hateful bigots because they see that there is this pre-existing fount of dislike for this way of being. And because they feel even stronger than that, they feel like they can build upon what is already there without too much fear of how it is going to negatively affect them in terms of public opinion about their character. And so if you don't have the counterbalance to that negative depiction of fatness, where at least half of the time there is a move towards fat acceptance and body acceptance and fat positivity, you'll never be able to starve the real bigots of their grounding and their sense of confidence to really express disgust and hatred for fat people. What upsets me is like, People, there are people that are like outrightly, yeah, I hate fat people, like, and what kind of thing. But they would outrightly say it if asked. And then there are the people that like wouldn't say it. They wouldn't say that they hate fat people. They'd say, no, of course I haven't got a problem with that being fat. But because things are so ingrained, they don't understand. Like this woman who said that thing to that woman on the bus. They don't understand that what they're saying is offensive and it is rooted in the fact that that fat is bad to them. Like, let's go to that TV show that I started watching, This Is Us, that new TV show with the fat character. Fat character and all those issues aside, in another part of the show, one male character picks up his skinny daughter and says, girl, what you been eating? As if to say, you're so heavy, it's hard for me to lift you. Like, it was so appalling. Just so appalling when I heard him say that. She was like a six-year-old girl. And what people don't understand is that it's those types of seemingly innocent comments when you're at a really young age that bury deep into your skin and you remember them forever and all these comments these seemingly innocent comments pile up and pile up and pile up until all you can see is fat is bad fat is bad and thin is good and that's what's gonna govern my life and that's why so many people have eating disorders and body dysmorphia and their whole life is ruled by I know I need to go on a diet I need to I need to try and change I need to be better I need to be thin I need to be thin like they don't understand that it's it's those you know yes you have the outright hate and it's obvious, and it's hard, and those things have obviously affect you as well. But when you get those seemingly innocent comments from people, especially people who are close to you, it's like, wow, not even my friends and family can, like, see me for what I am and it be okay. Well, then, just to play devil's advocate, isn't it good? Don't you dare. I have to play devil's advocate every turn. That's the demonic aspect to my personality. Mm. I was summoned at midnight what? inside of a pentagram. I'm so confused. With candles made of no. human fat <laughs> to bring it back to the subject. But yeah, isn't there some value then in at least 
some of the time when there are fat characters on TV shows in showing the kind of low-level insidious ways that society impresses upon them the idea that their fatness is bad. Like, obviously, you want a balance. Like I said, you want sometimes when fatness is celebrated and there are intelligent, compassionate people embracing the fat characters and showing that this isn't a big deal. And in fact, this is something that can be cherished because it's a part of you. It's an aspect of your personhood. But don't you also need TV shows and movies and books and whatever that in the fictional setting show what it is like when parents embed these subconscious ideas in your head about fat is bad and so later on you become a self-hating fat person isn't it good that you can see that happening on screen and so you can kind of figure out that that happens and maybe think about how it's happened in your life or how you inadvertently do that to others don't you need those kind of cautionary tales to some extent you do but we already have that in every single thing where there's fat people there are people saying things we can see you know regular people like me and you can see that that would be detrimental to a person but people who either don't care or who are hateful themselves will just laugh they will just laugh at that comment or that joke whereas like people like me and you and people in the fat community will just be thinking no why can't we take this and why can't we show this but what happens is is that we get so much of that one type is that we really just want some of the other type why does because then it becomes why does fat have to be this why does fat have to be this cautionary tale why does you know that's why a lot of people are like First, they were excited that there's going to be a a main character on a primetime TV show who's fat. She's one of the main characters, and it's going to be about her life. That was exciting. Then that excitement dwindles when you realise that the only thing about this character is that she's fat and that she's dealing with the fact that she's fat. Where I'm not saying that that's not something we don't need that's not something we don't need to see in fact for someone who has experienced fat hate eating disorders etc i welcome that and i wrote a blog post about this i welcome that but it's what you do with the story it's not okay to see that and then the story always then constantly evolving in but I need to fix myself I need to go on a diet and lose weight and that's how this character will become whole again what we want to see is her realizing it's okay to be fat in fact wow I love my fat body I have realized now that my whole life society has been telling me to hate myself when in fact I love myself and I am going to embrace everything about me and so my story will actually become something else and me being fat has got nothing to do with it or me being fat is only ever positive. That's what we want to see and that's what we need and that's what I think will change, will start. If we constantly see that, that's what will start to change people. Yeah. Well, 
obviously we need to hope that that happens but the problem is if it doesn't how do you spur that change because there's always going to be a trickle on the fringes of mainstream culture of things that do handle difficult topics like that with some nuance with some different perspectives but usually that's not enough to affect the behemoth of popular movies and popular tv shows and the way that they handle things so how do you get to the point where sometimes it is the one way and sometimes it is the other way well i wish the powers that be i.e the men making all these fucking movies and tv shows who are in charge of all the production companies and everything knew that average people just want to see average people and like I mentioned before, the average size of an American woman is a size 16, okay? So that's chubby slash fat to a lot of people. And so it's like, you know, why can't we just start to see what we look like on TV? If we start to do that in a way that's not, oh, there's a fat character, oh, there's a fat family, Oh, there's a fat joke every seven minutes. Just have them be characters like all the other characters. They don't, you don't have to mention it every five seconds. Like, that's what we need. It's all about representation and visibility and inspiration. People in the fat community trying to inspire people outside of the fat community so that they can see, hey, we're just like you. Like, you know, that's what we need. Yeah, hopefully things will tend towards that, and I think they are even at the present moment. Like I said, though, very, I very think, slowly. Yeah, it is a trickle at the moment, but obviously you hope that that you hope that that trickle accrues into a bigger flow of these things happening, and so it does start to have. Unfortunately, it is going to happen at a glacial pace. It seems like, but it, but you do start to have that kind of cultural change. But I also think, on a deeper level. As a kind of societal idea, we need to get away from when you see a fat person, you shouldn't think they're fat. And so that's a personal failing on their part. They're lazy or they eat too much or they just don't have the intelligence to realize that Finn is better because that's not the case. You should be able to look at a fat person and just think that is who they are and that's their decision. And I shouldn't in turn try to deride the choices they've made i should just accept the person that they are i can make whatever choices i want to make in my life for whatever reasons i want to make them but i can't look at someone and decide that because they're a certain way it proves that they're a bad person or they have some kind of failing and especially i can't go from that x to the y of in turn i can then say something to them in public because they deserve it because they didn't have the self-restraint to not eat or to exercise or something like that because you don't know those things and even if you do it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing that they have done or it's a failing on their part and it definitely doesn't give you ethical permission to be hateful towards them and to try and make them feel small there's this tact that a lot of people there's this tact that a lot of people take sometimes with yeah, but I'm healthy, so shut the fuck up. 
I'm I weigh this much or I look this fat but I'm healthy so why do you care as if it's okay for them to say something because they're pretending to care that you're fat and unhealthy no okay let's go from the top a I'm fat b whether I'm healthy or not is none of your fucking business c If I am unhealthy, like, I still deserve respect. I still deserve to take up space in this world just as much as you do. I still deserve to be able to go through life without facing such hatred. And I don't understand why people can't understand that. Because it, regardless of a person's health, it doesn't matter. Everyone should deserves respect the same level of respect yeah like you said it is such a strange thing that some people feel like they get to be the morality police the health police they get to look at someone that they deem as failing in some kind of way and they feel like that validates their expression of hatred to try and diminish that person to try and belittle them and I think people in their heads justify it as, well, maybe this will push them towards improving themselves. But it's like, why do you care? Yeah. And why do you... That whole, like, like the internet thing of, like, commenting on a perfect stranger's um, picture or whatever and being like, yeah, but in 20 years your knees are going to be bad and this is going to happen and you're going to have a heart attack. First of all... I don't understand this whole pretend caring about a perfect stranger's health and weight. No, you're a hateful bastard. Go away. Yeah. Like, why are you even here? Why do you even follow this page? Because you must follow this page in order to comment on every single photo. So you've got this weird kind of like need to see, but actually you need to, you justify it by being this pretend caring. I don't understand. Yeah. What it comes down to is there's no good logical moral justification for hating someone for the choices they've made about their lives or their bodies that affect only them. There's no way to say, well, it's okay that I hate fat people because they've made choices that I deem as unwise because it isn't any of your business and it's not up to you to police everyone else in the world and force them to make the decisions that you decide are the right ones or the culturally acceptable ones. We need to get back to this idea of live and let live. You live your life the way you want to live. And if you see other people making choices that you wouldn't make, that's fine. You don't have to make those choices. Make whatever choices you want to make and respect the choices that other people make. Exactly. And we're going to get to a point where... You don't have to worry about being in public as a fat person and worrying about cat calls or hateful things being shouted at you because everyone will respect the choices that other people make about their own lives. You're nodding in agreement. Yeah. A silent nod that doesn't translate <laughs> very well into podcasting. I just thought that was a good way to kind of like end the discussion that could be really could go in lots of different ways. It's like a really sensitive 
not sensitive, but it's a it's a topic close to home, and like I have so many feelings about it, and I just think this was a thoughtful discussion about it that I know we're gonna touch upon again via whatever. There's so many. Issues yeah, there's so many different ways to talk about this. So topic, I know we'll talk yeah. about it again. Well, that like you said, that is the perfect capstone to so many different things. There are obviously nuance and complications, but for a lot of topics, it does just come down to a very simple prescription of worry about yourself and don't try to publicly worry about other people and let that take the form of, I'm going to try and punish you for the choices you've made about your life that affect only you. And so, yeah. It it is weird sometimes when you do have to at some point say it really is simple when it comes down to it, but that is important sometimes. Just be kind, kids. Yeah. Be gentle with yourself. <laughs> be gentle with yourself. Yeah. There are a lot of like self hating people, and that's where a lot of this comes from. And I just feel like people need to be nicer to each other and to themselves. Well, I think at a certain point, you have to look at the type of people who would leave hateful comments on, say, a fat person's blog or on a YouTube video that features a fat person or whatever. And at some point, you do just have to feel pity for them because deep down, in a lot of cases, mean people are just sad people. They're people that have raging insecurities, that have bad situations going on in their life they have this self-hatred for whatever it is that forms a part of their person and they misdirect that at other people to try and diminish that voice in their head that tells them they're not living their life the right way and so they try to find other people they think are not living their lives the right way and just blindly vent all this rage and all this insecurity and all this unhappiness towards them as a way of not facing the problems in their own lives i agree but obviously it is hard to feel pity for someone who is (laughs) being a hateful scumbag (laughs) but that is what it comes down to these people do not have good lives no one that is successful that has a good life that feels good about themselves would spend time going on a random person's blog and leaving a really disgusting, hateful comment. That has never happened in the history of humanity. (laughs) Like, it really is that simple when it comes down to it. Oprah is there making, like, (laughs) hateful comments. (laughs) She has, like, a hundred pseudonyms where she just says mean and despicable things. Yeah. I don't like to think of Oprah this way. I tend not to think of Oprah (laughs) in any way, honestly. She doesn't really pop up in my (laughs) cogitation. Yeah. Okay, so... Should we move on to the next topic? Okay. What have you got for me? So, I saw an opinion piece on The Guardian Mm -hmm. entitled, Spare us the sight of men discussing abortion, especially politicians. (laughs) And the article focuses specifically on the vice presidential debate, the first one, I think it was. And... It's a female writer of this opinion piece. And she basically says, this is two men talking about the future of abortion law. And it shouldn't be men talking about this 
choice that affects only women in a primary sense anyway. And I just wanted to talk about that idea, but also the more general idea of what seems to be an increasing trend in the realm of ideas, especially on the left, of if you're a man, you can't talk about abortion politics. If you're white, you can't talk about, I don't know, police shootings of black people. If you're straight, you can't talk about LGBT politics. This idea that if you're not a part of the demographic affected by an issue, you should basically just watch from the sidelines and keep quiet. And I wanted to talk about that in general. Well, I think men alone should not be deciding anything when it comes to women's reproductive systems. Because they have no business doing so when they A, can't fully comprehend what it means to be pregnant and to not want to be pregnant. And I just don't think men on their own can decide that or should be deciding that. I think men with women, like if it was like a group of people that was men and women, then yeah, sure. Um, I think if someone who is white wants to talk about, um, like black politics or whatever, they want to, if they're trying to like organize something or, you know, discuss something, then they need to get like the opinions and they need to work in conjunction with black people because you can think you know as much as you think you know, but until you are in it yourself, you don't know. Like, like Trump the day when he's like, you know, what he said was wrong, by the way, pulling a baby out on the ninth month. That's not what a late term abortion is, but whatever. Um, he was describing a fucking C-section. But yeah, I think you can think you know, but until you know what it is to be able to be pregnant and, you know know that one day you could face that or have faced that or whatever, then you shouldn't be allowed to decide. Yeah, I think that's an interesting distinction. When you do see legislative bodies deciding upon abortion law, and they are either entirely male or a vast majority of them are male, there is that, I think, justifiable feeling of this doesn't, feel right this doesn't feel fair and so i definitely have sympathy for that position and so we're on agreement in that point i think but i wanted to talk more specifically about this idea that that you shouldn't talk even discuss something if it doesn't directly affect you for whatever reason is put forward either you're drowning out the voices of those who are affected or you don't understand it or whatever it is, I don't like this trend towards a very antagonistic call for silence, for censorship. Yeah, I don't think it should be that men can't talk about abortion at all, especially when it comes to, like, a couple and they get pregnant and they have to discuss what they want to do. You know, some people 
or of the even in within that couple you know you might get the man will say well I will do whatever she wants to do it's her body it's her choice I'm happy with whatever she wants to do and then you get men who are like no it's half my choice we are going to decide this together I get as much say as you and then you'll have men who are anti-abortion who will be like you are not fucking killing my baby like so you can't say men aren't affected they are affected because it might be their unborn child they have an opinion um so I don't think you can say men can't talk about abortion that's not that's not right yeah that's a fair point and I would go even further than that and say, to get off of the abortion subject for a second, even in instances where the person who wants to speak about something is not affected in really any way, I think they should still be able to talk openly about it and they should be able to have their voice heard. Now, if you want to make the argument that, say, in the instance of police shootings of black people, that black voices, quote-unquote, and that's a weird phrase, Black people speaking about that subject should be heard more. They should have a greater visibility and a greater effect than white people talking about it. I definitely have time for that argument. I think that's something that I could be persuaded about. But this idea that white people should stay silent about this, and if you do talk about it, you get shouted down or you get reminded of your privilege or you get told that Mm. you couldn't ever understand this even abstractly or hypothetically. That's really what I have a problem with. This idea that we can stop you talking about something because we see it as not being a right that you have. Well, I think sometimes you have to recognise that if you are not a part of a minority, that as a part of such privilege, you have the biggest voice. So if you want to try and lend that to help groups of people, then... That's totally okay, but you have to understand and recognise privilege and you have to understand and recognise when to take a step back. Like with men, they should say, you know, I could be affected by this, these abortion laws, but I understand and recognise that this is not my choice I for for a start as well, the government shouldn't be deciding whether people can have abortions or not. But whatever. Um, so they need to. Un- it would be good if they could say, "Okay, I have a big voice. I can help in terms of like getting the law where we want to get it." But I understand that I need to step back at some point and let a woman kind of take over. I think it's a fair compromise to, A, make all those relevant disclaimers. If you are a man talking about abortion, it is probably... To be honest, a lot of this, I think, goes about saying, but sometimes it is necessary to point out that you recognize that this is something that primarily and mostly affects women and that it has some influence on men's lives. And so even though you do have some skin in the game here, ultimately you are coming at it from a perspective of here's what I think about this. But because it affects women much more than it affects men, their opinions and their preferences about this should be 
accounted into the calculus with a greater weight. Yeah, I would even go as so far, even though I do think men are could be affected, and I do think men can. I don't think you should ever be stopped talking about anything. You can talk. You know, I totally believe in like not censoring and like free speech and stuff. But in terms of like whose decision it is, like it's the woman's decision, and that should always be acknowledged and recognized yeah and like you said the important thing at play here is also that in the paradigm of democracy if you want to get something changed you need more than just the group affected Mm. to get on board with the proposed changes if just women decide that we're going to exclude men from this process and we are just going to try and vote through proposals to change abortion, it might not necessarily be enough in terms of a majority of votes. So from a pragmatic stance, you need to bring all of society into this process and to educate all of society because that's the only way you're going to get the cultural and legal changes necessary to make real, lasting, substantial change. And if you allow the topic to become insulated, if you say that only women can talk about issues affecting women, then in effect you ghettoize the subject entirely and you allow yourself to become marginalized and you allow the issue to become marginalized. If you have the whole of society behind something and if you make the effort to educate everyone so that there is a sea change in public thinking about something that allows you to make a real difference a real change in the fabric of society yeah i agree actually that you do because just going back to the last topic i don't think the fat community alone can make changes the big changes that need to happen and so when you think that like They can change a massive part of it, but we all need allies in to try and get to a certain place. We all need the understanding of other people to try to change things and to move things forward. And so I agree, because you have to change people's minds. You have to change people's ideas. Just to touch on what you were saying about allies, I think... In a lot of social movements at the moment, there is this kind of tendency to look at allies with a continuously suspicious eye. If you're an ally, you're kind of told to sit on the sidelines and shut up and just make up the numbers. Instead of being brought in and involved in things, you're kind of kept separate, almost like you need to apologize for not being a part of the group itself which I think is ultimately going to be detrimental to whatever the movement itself is. If you hold those people who want to help at arm's length, and if you kind of belittle them and tell them that their voices are not important and don't even need to be heard, if you are kind of treated as a second-class citizen in the movement itself, ultimately you're going to deter people who otherwise would want to march with you, would want to vote towards bringing about the change you want to see and so if you go on treating people who would want to be allies 
with that kind of cold shoulder, with that kind of eye of suspicion, it's only going to hurt you in the long run. I agree. Like I said earlier, I think people want to romanticize it and and hope that they can do it all themselves. And in an ideal well, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have the movements because everything would be equal. But that's not the case. So in an ideal world, you'd want to kind of do it, be able to do it on your own, so that you can see at the end that it was that much more triumphant. But I think done in the right way, you know, having the backing of even more people, especially people who some people might consider almost enemies, you're showing that change can happen and that we can just all live together. And so... I do wish there was kind of like an easier way for us to do that so that being a so-called ally was kind of more acceptable. Because I think hate, it is massive and there is a lot of it, but it's not the majority of people who hate. The haters are a minority. So, you know, it just is going to take a lot of work to make that change and to have everything be the way that we wish that it was going to be. Yeah. I just wish we could get away from, and obviously this is only relevant to a small subsection of social movements, but there is always that kind of diehard faction within these social movements that have just an extreme antagonism towards outsiders and that's how sometimes allies get treated poorly if you want to be an ally to certain movements you almost have to adopt this apologetic self-abasing stance of like i know i'm not worthy to be here and i know that Mm. people like me have done all these bad things to the class of people advancing this social movement but i humbly offer my you know my silent presence to just be here and to be seen as part of the problem instead of to be seen as part of the solution. I just think ultimately that hinders things to adopt that kind of stance of heaping acrimony on anyone who is seen as an outsider that wants to help the movement achieve its goals. Like I said, you need that dramatic, all-encompassing societal change in terms of the way that everyone thinks about something in order to push through some kind of big alteration to the way that society functions and the way that society views itself. I think there's been a running theme throughout this episode and it's be a part of the solution. Be kind. Don't be hateful. Yeah. And hopefully, together, if everyone can do that, then there's going to be change. If we link arms and sing. (laughs) Kumbaya, my lord. Kumbaya. I tried to do my sweetest voice, but it wasn't happening. Mm. Yeah. It's going to happen one day, baby. It's going to happen one day. I'm not quite so optimistic, (laughs) but... In our lifetime. Who knows? Hopefully. In our 115-year lifetime. Yeah, if we live that long, we'll definitely get <laughs> yeah, to see maybe. some stuff go down. 
So yeah, we should probably bring this bad boy to a close. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share it with anyone else you think may like it. We release new episodes every week-ish. Yeah, we're on a what we like to call a weekly-ish schedule. <laughs> but I think in practice that's going to work out to... We get a new episode out around a week, a week and a half after the last yeah. episode. That's what we're shooting for right now. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. Um, you can find the podcast on iTunes and pretty much all of the podcast services. You can go to artatpodcast.com, that's A-R-T-A-T, which redirects to our SoundCloud page. And if you have any feedback or comments, which we welcome, send them to artatpodcast at gmail.com. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes if you have the time and chance, because it really helps new podcasts like ours, and we really appreciate it. If you did... Yeah, we're still a youngster. We're We're still in diapers. We're little babies. We've still got that. You know how babies have that like spot on their heads where the skull (laughs) isn't fully fused, and if you, I, I feel like I don't like this. They get severely injured. This is making me think of mushy skulls. Our podcast has a mushy skull (laughs) still, so handle us gently. Please help us become fully formed. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. The music used during the intro and outro was kindly provided by Christopher from soundslikeanearful.com. See you next episode.